This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Everyone's a critic, jointly presented with Chendanan. Hello, you're listening to Everyone's a Critic. I'm Sharmila Ganesan. And for today's review, I'm joined by Dashran Yohan, who is from the Bigger Picture team. Pleasure to have you as always, Dash. Pleasure to be back on the show. So today we are reviewing um, a quite an interesting and I think a, a unique online exhibition mm. uh, because we say exhibition, but really it's more a collection of archival material. It's called Or Silence and it's an exhibition that examines the the way we talk about the May 13th incident. And um, the title, I think, is quite telling. It's mm-hmm. called Or Silence, right? Um, and so that that general um, tendency of silence or censorship that exists around this historical event. So it's happening at orsilence.com. Um, and it's co-curated by Chai Tong and Rebecca Yo. You can access it until the 20th of December. So as I said, it's actually quite an interesting one. It's a virtual exhibition. You can go into various um, quote-unquote rooms on the website and each room gives you a different kind of uh, written material that relates to May 13th in mm. a particular way. And some are fiction, some are archival material, some are oral histories. And all together, I think they form this way of engaging with this historical event that's really quite unique. Yeah, I I found it very very unique. Um, just I mean from the formatting um perspective, um, this really felt like you know when you watch movies and when certain detectives they cannot find certain information, so they have to go to a library and dig up like old newspapers. It really did. Um, they they try to do. You know, try to encapsulate that where you can go into different rooms and different rooms like some you have like you see a picture of a stack of papers. It's huge. So when you click on it, then you you are taken to this PDF where there's like 45 pages for you to read on. Others are like shorter, um, more personal stories and all of that. And it is very interesting. It, it, like you brought up the title. I thought the title is perhaps... Um, you know, it, it really gro- uh, grabbed my attention right from the go. I, I thought it was really, really powerful. And what they are trying to do here is because when we learn history, you know, we, we do, everybody knows May 13, but the May 13 that we get from our history textbooks is very superficial. It's very, it's so obvious that they don't want to talk about it, but they got sort of no choice. So they just sort of you know, brush through it very fast and you get this sort of one-sided account. Whereas this, they really try to, you know, dig deeper and they're trying to say, you know, what what, what if like whatever you know about May 13, um, if you've just learned it from history textbooks, um, is very superficial, is not enough. It doesn't paint the full picture. Um, I'm, I guess I, I, you know, we were just talking before we recorded whether this paints the full picture or not, but it definitely paints a much, much more nuanced picture than what a lot of us may be familiar with. Yes, and you mentioned history textbooks, mm-hmm. but I would extend that also even to media coverage, mm. not just not just in the past, but even today. Um, I mean, we work in the media. We know that there are challenges when it comes to being able to cover May 13th in mm-hmm. a particular way. Um, so I think the power of something like this is almost in that element of um, discovery. They present so many different ways in which you can find out. And some of them are very removed and very uh, clinical in the way Mm -hmm. they talk about the events. Uh, Some are so personal that it's actually quite painful to read through them. Some are fictional, some are academic. And I think one of the things about, one of the things about, um, 
experiencing or, or re-experiencing these events in these different tones and different ways of writing um, is that it really does give you um, a multiplicity of ways that you can approach this, and the fact that, and the fact that the way we uh, talk about it has also changed over time. Mm. I mean, and and I I really did find that each component of it was powerful in a different way. Um, it really depends how you navigate the the virtual rooms, right? So I started with the archival material. So they actually did. Um, they have this whole section of pages and pages of documents from the British archives, yes. and the exhibition calls it a repatriation of memory, which mm-hmm. I really, really like. Um, and so you see everything. You see uh, telegrams from the High Commission here back to uh, Britain uh, mm-hmm. at that time. You see newspaper articles. You see um, discussions or, or, or um, uh, even communiques that our politicians have written uh, that have been shared with the UK. But what was interesting, I think, was this outside-in perspective that that gives you. Uh, And that's where I said the sort of slightly clinical tone. Mm. And I felt really almost like, oh, actually, this might be how even we talk about May 13th sometimes. And that made me quite uncomfortable. And I think that's a that's an interesting feeling to have. Yeah, certainly. I I concur with everything um, you say. And also, like, I really like... um Perhaps like the one that grabbed my attention the most was this oral history, all the this personal anecdotes you get from um, family members. So they have tracked down um, a number of um, victims, um, family members, and all, and they talk about um, you know it's just I think you know sometimes when we read about these events, right, it really feels like. You know, this huge, and it is, it was huge. But what I mean is, we always look at it from a very broad perspective, right? Oh, it's the Chinese versus the Malays and, and these sorts of things, and, and oh, this big political stuff, which is all very important. But I think what, you know, really, really moved me about um, the oral history part, about, you know, just reading up and listening, um, you know, to, to the, the, the personal an- anecdotes by family members of the survivors is that, um, you know, these are all just regular human beings. A lot of them, you know, these victims, you know, you, you hear stories about, oh, there's this guy. Um, he comes from a fairly middle-class family. He studied really well. He went to New Zealand and he stayed there for for seven years. Then he came back home and, and you know, he was driving um, with two female friends, um, um, two lady friends. Um, one of them was a Malay woman and one of them was a Chinese woman. And Suddenly, the next thing you know, there's this at- attack happening, the riots are happening, and he, and he just dies. And, and, you know, the family member talks about how he, he loves badminton and, and things like that. And you realize that for a lot of these people, they were not engaged in some bloodbath, revenge thing, some big political movement or stunt. They were just regular civilians going about their lives. And next, next thing you know, you know this, this happened. So it's, it's very, very troubling that those, those excerpts. It's, so I, I think actually what you realize is that even they talk about this um, notion of silence, right? Mm. Um, a lot of the uh, accounts of people who lived through and who lost uh, lost loved ones in the in these incidents, they talk about um, 
but a different kind of silence. They talk about the silence of pain. They talk about the inability to even talk about what happened to their family members decades after just because of how difficult it is and how painful it is. Um, and I think that that's where the um, this exhibition excels. When they talk about silence, they're talking about a political silence, yes. They're talking about censorship. But there's also other kinds of silences. And I think it makes a real case for creating spaces where that silence can be broken. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have so much to say about the oral histories part, um, but I wanted to also touch on one particular thing that I found very interesting about the archival material mm. from the UK, which is the way they break down the Malaysian political situation. Yes, There's one um, entire document that basically lists all of the political parties that existed at that time and how the British saw them, how the British saw the way these jigsaw pieces fit to create this idea of the Malaysian political landscape, um, who they thought was powerful, who they thought was worth keeping an eye on, uh, the key political figures. Um, and I think these sorts of things gave the the exhibition a, a sort of... Um, you mentioned a, a, another thing, a detective story, mm. but it also gave it this kind of interesting... Um, like you can see main players. It's a political drama. Um, and piecing together these seemingly very removed documents and then there are little things about you know Tunku made a statement or Tun Ismail said this or Tun Razak said that and you're like oh okay you you can actually get a picture of what the scene uh, what the scenario might have been like at that time and I found that really fascinating yeah me too I, I thought you know like like you mentioned how there's this you know personal side but then there's also this this broader picture that we are seeing and we are we we don't get these sorts of things in such a, a detailed manner um, on mainstream media where everyone, um, because of our landscape, um, is so afraid to talk about these things. And you also get a sense of understanding of why media today is so afraid to talk about these things because they also, um, you know, in the archives, they talk about, okay, there's like this censorship going on and how like Tun Raza didn't like the foreign press because they were talking too much, uh, you know, uh, you know, uncovering certain things which they didn't think was, you know, fit right with the narrative that they were trying to put forth. And so you see all these things and I really like that. That political parties one honestly made me chuckle because... It really shows like the it, it comes from a British perspective. So like when it comes to like say MIC, they just sort of give like a one line thing which just sort of brushes them off as you know irrelevant according to the British, you know, and, and things like that. And you, I think what we we the the big picture thing that that I get from it is is how a lot of these things are you know there's a lot of political play going on. It's not just oh these two races decided to fight. And it's not just about one elections and then, you know, this fight broke out. There's a lot more manoeuvring going on behind the scenes, not just leading up to that, but also after the event, um, whether it's censorship or various, various different aspects. We are reviewing um, an online exhibition called Or Silence that's happening at orsilence.com. Uh, it's co-curated by Chai Tong and Rebecca Yo, and it examines the it examines May 13th from the perspective of censorship, from the perspective of the silences that exist around it. Uh, let us know, do you enjoy exhibitions that deal with these sorts of perhaps challenging, difficult topics? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. You're listening to Everyone's a Critic, jointly presented with Chindana. Because freedom matters. BFM 89.9 
You're listening to Everyone's a Critic, jointly presented with Chintana. Welcome back. You're listening to Everyone's a Critic with Sharmila. And today, Dash from the Bigger Picture team is with me as well. And together, we're reviewing a virtual exhibition called Awe Silence. That's happening online from, uh, that's happening online till the 20th of December. You can just head on over to awesilence.com to check it out. So we spent a lot of time talking about, um, I think, particular aspects of the exhibition that we liked. Um, I wanted to hone in on the more personal stories mm-hmm. because I really think that's where this exhibition lives and breathes. Um, it's by no means complete. Mm. I feel like I would have loved to see more uh, because they are drawing on other oral history projects that you know other groups and people have done. Um, so I really would like to see this um, expanded. I wanted to touch on one aspect that I didn't think would be as effective or as I think it, it punched me in the gut in right. the in a way that I didn't expect, and that was an academic article um, because it uh, the the exhibition features an academic paper on the Sungai Bulo Cemetery yes. where the victims, um, particularly the the Chinese victims uh, from the May thirteenth incidents, uh, were buried, and. It actually paints a, a very stark and very um, troubling picture of how the choice of where to place these victims, how to memorialize them, or, or in this case, not memorialize them, and what that might say about the narrative and how that might impact the people left behind. Um, I went into that section not really expecting to be so emotionally impacted, but I found that a really powerful addition. Yeah, certainly. I, I, I love that segment too. It, and I agree with you that, you know, the large bulk, I think, like why you would really stay for this exhibition or what most people would really be taken um, into is the personal stories and, and all of that. Even the, the academic article that you're referring to about choosing where to bury. And you you get a lot of small details that um, you don't really think about much because there was also um, one part where they talk about how or oh, many years later they wanted to um, reclaim that land, that burial ground for um, development and, and, and stuff like that. And how... Um, you know, certain... So it's not that people, like, you know, had a massive problem with it or what, but you, you can see how p- people were impacted by that because what then happens to this to this piece of history, you know, that, uh, you know, as we grow, as years and years pass and we go more and uh, this further away from the May 13 incident in 1969, all these pieces of history are actually very important. And so when you take certain things away, um, how much are you erasing? Because even in this, um, which they did a fantastic job um, sort of um, putting everything together, you know, like there are certain maybe articles or what that you barely can read anymore because it's all faded, it's been there and you cannot, it's not things that you can just Google and just find out, oh, what was this missing article and things like that because this was a time before the internet and all of that. So it, it's very interesting, all these these personal stories, these small details that nobody would otherwise think about or talk about when talking about May 13, um, how it all f- comes together to piece this puzzle. And, and I and I really, really uh, was taken by it. See, you said 1969, and I was thinking to myself, on the one hand, it's not that long ago. Mm. Um, there are certainly people around who's, who lived through it, yep. um, who can share, uh, you know, share memories of it as, you know, as difficult as that might be. On the other hand, because of how fraught that memory is and because of, of how fraught that event is, there is actually not a lot of conversation about it, not in a substantive way. Um, and that's why every time 
we are presented with a way to engage with it, um, like this exhibition. Uh, oh, I remember reading um, Hannah Alkaf's The Weight of Our Sky, and it feels new and fresh. And I don't mean that in a in a good way. I mean, it feels like you are unearthing a part of your own country's history that you didn't even really know about, even though we should know about it, right? Um, which brings me to something that I kept thinking about as I as I went through this virtual exhibition, one being um, I'd love to see this expanded and to kind of be a, a larger repository of information. But at the heart of a lot of this was, I think, this conversation of memorializing um, Many families outright talk about, well, how are our loved ones going to be memorialized? We mean we need a space. But the contrast of that is, of course, are we even nationally as a society able to memorialize this incident without it turning political, without it being skewed in a particular way? And and I think that that made me um it made me angry. It made me upset. It made me sad because I was thinking about, for instance, the um, Holocaust Memorial in uh, Berlin um, or the Holocaust Museum in the U in Washington D.C. and how moving it was and how. So the the main part of that that was powerful was the acknowledgement by the people in power if of their part in it, and I think the challenge with for us is that because that hasn't happened. Um, any idea of memorializing becomes too difficult to contend with. Yeah, I mean, that was something I was, I kept thinking about why is this such a, pretty much it's a simple ex exhibition. Why does it have such an impact? Why am I being like so moved by this? And I think it is because like, like Malaysia has a way of, and we still do it to this day, maybe slightly lesser than before, but it's still part of this where, uh, whatever conflict that we we have to we don't deal with the conflicts that we face instead like even when you look at the way may 13 was sort of resolved in a very haphazard quickly let's just sweep it under the rugs and and, and don't let anybody talk about it anymore and that's the thing like when we talk about race um, it, it's such a difficult thing to talk about when we talk about even something that is happened in history um, it's everything is very like I, even you ask like a lot of people they are and this is because of the people in power right they are the regular people feel very like I don't know like if I should I say this should I say it this way should I say it in a politically correct way how diplomatic should I be when I say this and, and it's all these things and you don't get to the heart and soul and the reality of what happened Whereas, like you know, when we when we look at let's say big, let's say Engl uh, U.S. history or what, I mean, even there, there's a lot of guarding and, and all of that. But because they're let's say their space, there's less censorship. You get a lot of movies and things about what happened. Whereas we don't get that here. And so whenever like an exhibition like this happens, where it feels so refreshing, and I, I know it sounds like like Shamila you also brought up the word, and you know, it's a weird word. It's a weird word yeah. to use for such a tragic event, but it is refreshing because I think people should, you know, they should engage with it, despite how difficult it, it, you know, it is, and it is difficult, despite how uncomfortable it is, which it is. But I think we should start engaging with this and start having these diff difficult conversations. And this exhibition creates the space for that. Dash, thanks for reviewing this with me. No, it was a pleasure. It was really, really, thanks for inviting me and asking me to check this out, because this was really moving. 
Yes, highly recommended from both yes. of us. Um, we have been reviewing Awe Silence. It's an online exhibition that focuses on the events of uh, May 13, 1969. Uh, looks at it from the perspective of the silence that usually surrounds this conversation. Uh, you can check it out at oresilence.com. It's co-curated by Chai Tong and Rebecca Yo, and it's available for viewing until the 20th of December. Let us know, do you enjoy exhibitions like this uh, that focus on difficult events from history? You can WhatsApp us, zero. 18789 Tweet us at BFM Radio. Everyone's a critic. Jolly presented with Chendale. For updates on Malaysian arts and culture, visit www.baskl.com.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.